Welcome to Daystar Rising. I'm Keith Murray. And I'm Julie Murray. Join us for conversations about destiny, discernment, and the new spiritual paradigm. Hey everyone, thanks for joining us again this week. Hello Miss Julie, good to see you. Thank you, it's good to be here. We always do that. Good for me to be here too. Good for us both to be here. And uh, three girls, Feisty, Feisty Ann, Zoe Bug, Zoe P. Bug, (laughs) and Daisy, a.k.a. the Kraken. The Kraken. And Little Bitty the Cat is not in here at the moment. Little Bitty the Fat Cat. Yes. Very fat cat named Little Bitty. (laughs) So we we were just uh, talking and uh, drinking a little coffee and talking and decided we'd go ahead and record another podcast, maybe on some of these topics. We were discussing the problem of recidivism. I and uh, one of the gentlemen in our congregation for the past, I guess coming up on close to two years, Hmm. we began, uh, got a letter from an inmate a couple of years ago. Still to this day, I'm not quite sure how he learned about me or what made him reach out, but on behalf of their congregation in one of the prisons in Oklahoma, he wrote a letter and asked if I would be interested in going in and talking to their congregation there. And to be perfectly honest, I was not very inclined to want to do that. Probably I reacted like a lot of people would, I I would guess, that I never had any desire to walk into a prison mm-hmm. and go inside of there, you know. Well, there's a bias. Of course there's a bias. Yeah, I had a lot of biases about it. And, and I think if we're, most people have never really thought about it. But when we do think about it, most people, you know, and I was included in that category, their concept of prison is based on movies and television shows and just hearsay. Unless they have had a first-hand account of it, which is not most most people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm not saying it's not very bad. All of them will tell you that uh, you do not want to go in there and you do not want to. It's not a place that you want to live at all. But nevertheless, James and I decided to go. And uh, it was very different. The service was just, it went so much differently than I expected it to go. How and, so? Well, the first time we went, for one thing, you know, we were both probably pretty nervous about going, as most people would be. And you pull up to this facility, and you see the fences and the razor wire and these uh, towers and everything. And you walk up there to this gate with this razor wire, and you see the cameras there in a moment. Somebody observing you, the gate will open, or did for us. You step inside, and then the gate closes behind you. You proceed, move forward another 20, 25 feet or something. There's another gate, another camera, and it opens, and you move forward. And then you move into sort of this, uh, the two that I've been in, kind of a nice little courtyard area with shrubs and flowers and things like that, and walk down the sidewalk into a building, and then it becomes a little bit like an airport where there's an x-ray machine and you see these little bins and you take out all of your, um, first of all, <laughs> we've been told beforehand, you taking a cell phone into a uh, prison is a felony. 
And so it's a very serious thing. And so we checked our pockets several times before we went in there. Almost nothing can you take in that's not considered contraband. So you just had to confront a lot of misconceptions or fears and fears yeah. in first going through there. And I mean, you expected to have some kind of security search, you know, search yeah. I would have. Well, we did. I mean, we were. Yeah, yeah. And you just go through different levels to get in there. But in terms of once you got in there and started mixing, when I tell people that you go into the prisons, they'll kind of give me this look like, wow, he's brave. And it is brave, but the misconception with people is that you're just going in cold or blind and talking to people that are not, they don't already have congregations formed. And the way you and, and this other man have gone in, you're visiting a congregation that already exists. We were, yeah, and we've been doing our own now for mm-hmm. some months. So that's why it's different a little bit than you expect, because you go in and it's a little bit like going to a church inside, well, it is a church inside of a prison or a group inside of a prison, and you said it was very different than what you expected in terms of the people, the inmates, how they, their attitudes and their behavior, how it was that. Uh, I remember just being pretty well shocked the first time that we went in there, and I think that James probably had a similar reaction because it's called the chapel, and it's this, you know, it's like pews like you would see in church, and it looks, you know, it wasn't very big, but uh, probably about, I don't know, seven or eight fairly long pews in this place. It would probably, well, there are two different ones we went to, and one of them probably held about 60 people. The other one, maybe a hundred, something good like size, that. Then. Yeah, they were. But as I met these guys and walked in there, there was such peace and such joy wow. and such appreciation for us coming. So nice to us. You know, I remember stepping up to the podium and looking out there at them. And I remember one of the first things I said is that I felt like I needed to sit down and listen to them. And you meant it, of course. Yeah, you meant it. Yeah, I definitely it, did mean yeah. it. And uh, because you could see in a lot of these guys the fruits of the Spirit in them, and you could feel it pulsating from mm-hmm. them. And I felt kind of ashamed and embarrassed a little bit and ill equipped. I felt like that they were more spiritually advanced in many ways, or, uh, you know, maybe that I might know things that they didn't in certain areas, but these guys had really produced things in their life. They were embodying yeah. in their life in inside the prison walls the spiritual principles that they were learning in a way that surprised you. They were like you could feel it in them and on them. You could feel that they were serious and devoted to that, which is actually what gives the fact of the recidivism rate it, what makes it a tragedy? It's, a, I mean, it's a tragedy anyway when you don't know. And when we say recidivism, Keith had to educate me. It's just the rate at which an inmate, when they get released and they go out into the world, it's the rate of getting arrested again and going back to prison. You know, you can kind of understand this to, for me. It makes more sense to me for inmates who are not spiritual, who didn't accept any kind of spiritual yoke on them, didn't seek any kind of regret, you know, they weren't regretful, they weren't remorseful, they didn't ever ask for forgiveness, you know, if they're just, the only difference at that point in my mind of when they were out and when they're in the prison is that they're locked up now, 
And there are some people like that, like their insides don't change. And so that makes sense to me when they're released. Why, you know, if their values haven't changed and they haven't had a come to Jesus moment or, or come to whatever realization and started to change, then when they're released, of course, they're just going to be themselves again in society. And if the self was a criminal doing criminal acts um, because they can't control that part of their ego to the degree that they get arrested, then they're going to be back. That made sense to me. But what was so tragic, seeing this from Keith's perspective of these men, that a change did happen. There was an internal transformation toward the things of God. They were broken in the right way before God and before the standard and before his forgiveness and compassion. And he could see it on them and does see it on them that they genuinely, genuinely want to be different and better and more according to the standard of what they see in the scriptures and what is revealed by the Holy Spirit. They want this for themselves. The recidivism rate, though, for these men is still also high. And it is, it is a tragedy because, you know, this problem for a little while now has been rolling around in your mind like marbles. And you've really been putting your mind and your heart to asking the question, why is this and what can I do about it? Yeah, and huh, I guess many people have and still continue to over the years. I don't know ex precisely what it is. I mean, I've seen different statistics, but it's around 80% mm -hmm. or higher yeah, it's high. for someone who has been in prison. They're... 80% of them, about, are going to go back. That's and tragic. Here in the state of Oklahoma, we have the highest female incarceration rate in See, the United States. That's crazy to me. The and, highest? Yes, and it's uh, the second highest male incarceration rate, from what I understand. And both of these, particularly the, the female population, is projected to increase greatly. Okay, now see, and I'm not trying to railroad you, I just need to interject a comment here. That that blows me away for several reasons. We are known as the heartland, and I have seen that the Messianic movement, to whatever degree you're part of it or not part of it, it was a move of God toward the things of Israel and what people call the Old Testament to start integrating the whole Bible with itself. It was a move of the Spirit, although people have kind of drove it in the ditch to some degree in my opinion. But it was the move of God, and it st seemed, anyway, to start in this state and in parts of Texas. When it first got going, it's like it was re there was like revival, as we call revival, in the heartland. And so there's a passage in Scripture, I believe it's Ezekiel, where Ezekiel was carried, correct me if I'm wrong, was carried off to Babylon, and there were still people in, in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was still a city, but it had been conquered, and like vassal kings had been a king had been put over who was sub subject to Babylon. So Ezekiel was a priest. He was carried off and to Babylon. And while in Babylon, had a vision, and God took his astral body, energy body, whatever you want to call it, back to Jerusalem and showed him some stuff. And he was pronouncing judgments according to the will of God. And in one of these visions, or in this vision, one of the angels, he heard somebody say something you know, go through and mark like people in their foreheads that were, if I'm not mistaken, bemoaning the fact that everyone was so godless and that the testimony and the commandments were being thrown in the street, you know, trampled underfoot. And he said, go mark them. And then there was another, I'm, I'm kind of fuzzy on this, but there was judgment to start being poured out on the city. And he told his angel to go mark my people and then let the judgment start and begin at my sanctuary. 
begin at my sanctuary. Yeah. I mean, and that's that's pretty. That is a that is a concept. You know, he told the Lord told Moses, "I will be sanctified in those who are closest to me," mm-hmm. and he'll be sanctified through everyone before it's done. But it starts with those closest to him. And so, seeing Oklahoma and Texas as the heartland and the revival place where a lot of this begins, it, it I start to put it together that okay, when when reckoning comes, you know, it's going to begin at my sanctuary. And so the gift of us is also the drawback of us if we don't get on board with what God is doing. But it still blew me away when I heard this percentage. Like, why of all 50 states, why would we be the ones that are first in female incarceration with such a projection to go up when churches are... I mean, and I know I can hear people out there, well, just because you're in church doesn't mean you're changed. I totally get that. But it is such an indictment because in some of these other states, the more northern states that you, I'm not saying there's not believers there, but you associate more with godlessness or they don't value spiritual things as much, don't seem to. There's not a culture of believerism. There's not churches on every corner no. like around here. Right. And I mean, you would just expect that just by osmosis. And this is part of why we wanted to start a podcast with the coming spiritual paradigm being a part of our tagline to really talk about what we see God doing and what we sense is coming to correct this nonsense. It's like you've got a form of godliness, but you're denying the power thereof. You you take my name, and so many people say, just take God's name in vain is to say GD or whatever. But whenever you attribute a vain work to God, or you attribute God's works to the devil, whenever you mismatch those things and you make God or his work or his word of vanity through your life, through the hypocrisy of making it vain, and you don't let it come to the full fruition and empowerment in your life, that is, if you've got his mark on you and you're his, that is taking his name, his word, his spirit, his self in vain. Mm -hmm. And you're not going to go uncorrected in that. Yeah, I mean, people do normally think of it in those terms, like you said, of uh, speaking of profanity with God's name. But in uh, Genesis 1-2, when we read, And the earth was without form and void, Mm -hmm. and darkness covered the face of the deep. There is a passage in Isaiah, I think it's uh, 27, can't remember, that it says that the Lord did not create the world in Mm -hmm. vain. Mm-hmm. And it's the same word that appears in verse 2 there, that tohu vavohu, the word tohu, it's translated without form, is translated as vain in Isaiah. So it's something void, enough, brought to nothingness or a desolation. So, so uh, it doesn't produce. So he didn't create it in vain, but then we see it in vain yeah, like Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, I think you've said before, and maybe that's yeah, that's obviously what you're referring to, but there was a point where it wasn't created in vain, and this is actually a spiritual law. This is one that, that we have, there are things as you go and you pursue truth and you grow in wisdom and you grow in insight and you humble yourself on your face and you say, purge my self-sabotaging ego out of your way then you start to understand and you start to align with the truth in front of you in small ways Then you do this over days and years of time, you will begin more and more and more bringing your whole life and your whole spirit under subjection to the laws of God. And I don't just mean, I'm not just talking about the commandments here. I'm talking the laws of God at a universal or cosmic 
level. And the thing that I was going to say, one of those laws is that God does nothing in vain. And we know that and we'll say, well, that's right. But another way to say that is God is efficient. He is not inefficient. Everything he does is to an efficient, streamlined, strident purpose that hits the mark. It's the arrow that always finds the dead center of the target. And if we are his body, if we are the body of Yeshua, I'm not trying to promote perfectionism to try to reach this goal that's unattainable in our idea of perfectionism, but as we conform to his words, as we conform to them, we will become more and more like him and everything we go to do will become more efficient, streamlined, focused the longer we go. And, you know, certain people, we've talked before about personality types and here in tortoise energy. Some people, depending on their personality, they're just, they're just, there are different types. And so when I say more efficient, I'm not saying everybody's going to be running around with pocket protectors and little glasses and everything tucked in and their belts and other loafers. I just mean that everything you go to do begins to have more power because it's more aligned to the Spirit of God in the way that that happens in you. Because that's the nature of God. That's one of the attributes of God is His efficiency. Yeah, I was reminded of the verse. can't remember exactly how it's written, but whatever you do, do it unto the Lord, basically with all your might, something like that. But when you examine that and you really sort of zero in on that and think about what's being said... Can you do that if you're not living with intention? Right. And if you haven't developed and cultivated some degree of focus about whatever you're doing, that you're trying to do it with some amount of, maybe you're not an expert, but in, Most you know, of us we can't, in yeah. every area, right. but you're beginning to live and make decisions and do things with a greater degree of consciousness and awareness you can't live completely unconsciously and, and do things Mm-mm. as unto the Lord and do them with all of your might. No, I mean you can't even live you can't even live in your own integrity if you're un, if you're unconscious. You know, and, and that needs to be broken down too. What does it mean to live in your integrity? Because if you say that to a Christian or to a believer, they'll say that means living according to God's laws. And I'm not saying that's not part of it, but, you know, we kind of have to break this thing down and start at the beginning. Integrity, I heard that word thrown around all my life, but when I heard it in a, like an engineering definition, it made the most impact on me. I heard somebody say, I don't remember where it was or how it was, but talking about a machine and the machinery of something, the integrity of the structure held, like the space shuttle. When you shoot it in space, you know, it goes through some trauma going through the atmosphere and all of that, but the integrity of it holds. When it does, I mean, we've had some disasters and it drives the point home, the integrity of the structure holds. And that really got into my deep thought processes. It's like, okay, kind of back to efficiency and hypocrisy and not living perpendicular to your own values. Well, if you don't know your values, how can you be aligned to them? You know, if you're living unconsciously and you're just kind of shooting, it's like pin the tail on the donkey. You know, somebody, somebody somewhere, help me, put, you know, lead me in the right direction. And a lot of life is you don't really know what you're doing or where you're going. But that's why practicing with intention and with consciousness and what we can and do know, learning our values, what we do want to manifest, what kind of people we do want to become, 
and just starting to realign those trajectories and then living according to what we say we believe. It's actually better, in my opinion, to let go of a stranglehold of belief a little bit. You know, and I know this is kind of controversial in thinking. Question and examine your beliefs. If you have a massive problem living according to your beliefs, then maybe you want to look at your beliefs a little bit and just work to create, to close the gap between where you are and where you want to be. And you can do that from either direction, you know, question your beliefs and question yourself when it's all of a piece, but you have to define what is the most important thing to you and then start living your life according to that thing. And, and that's going to bring up, if you keep, if you continue that work, that's going to bring up all kinds of issues of, like Paul said, wretched man that I am who will save me from this body of death. What I don't want to do, I do. And what I do want to do, I don't. And that's at the heart of recidivism. And it's like, okay, I've got these built-in habits and these built-in mechanisms of thinking and believing. And I've taught myself when the music plays, this is how I behave according to my wounded emotion. And the programming is deep. And so when they get into prison, they become a part of a congregation that is a support system, spiritual support system that massively helps them. A lot of their choices are limited. So things that would have been a distraction or a potential danger to derailing them if they lived on the outside is removed on the inside. It's almost, I've said this before, it's like a type of monastic living and it benefits them because it takes away, and I know all kinds of crazy things still happen in prison, but it still does eliminate a whole lot of options and choices that they would just be bombarded with on the outside. And so they get into a place that they've got support if they join a congregation. They've got limitation to the bad stuff. They sit in their cells a lot. I mean, they have a lot of time to sit and contemplate what they've done wrong and the things they've lost because of their behavior. It all works in alchemy on them. But the problem is nothing is ever... How do I even say this? Because I don't want to make a statement that nothing gets worked on that's deep in them with their wounds because they are sharing at a deep level. But to the degree they haven't addressed these core wounded ego mechanisms in themselves that typically get built because a lack of self-worth and self-belief and self-love because of the way they were raised often or not raised or neglected. And I'm, and I'm not saying that it's okay that they do crimes because and we should just feel sorry for them and, you know, that there's no consequence for that. But I'm saying if we want to get to the heart of the recidivism issue, you're going to have to go back to this deep wounded programming in them so that when they get on the outside, they need a support structure, but there's something that needs to get down into them deep at an alchemical soul level that starts to, you know, Yeshua said the kingdom of heaven is likened to leaven. And usually leaven is told, it, we're told that it's sin. But he said the kingdom of heaven is also likened to leaven. It's likened to a virus. It is. What viruses do, they get into cells and they replicate their own identity. And that's a type of resurrection because if the kingdom of heaven is like leaven and leaven is like a virus, then the kingdom of heaven can go in and start replicating itself in each cell of our soul. And it's like a mini resurrection to, you know, it gets in there and it gets in all these parts and it starts replicating itself from the inside out. And I'm like you, I don't know what programs, I don't know exactly what, because people have created programs, but they, they're not 
addressing the deep core level at the level of transformation deep inside a soul that makes one a new creature and they live from that place. Yeah, well, you're, you're right. There's all sorts of programs and some of those are mandatory or that they get into mm -hmm. some sort of program before they're released sometimes. And you're right, you could make some comparisons, I think, as somewhat still of an outsider looking in to a monastic style of living, even though there are some, there's some really bad things yes. and, and, and drugs and still like, uh, yeah. and things still find their way sure. in there somehow, probably in all of them. I don't know. Uh, people are pretty resourceful. Uh, they've got all day long to think about strategies and schemes to accomplish what they want. But on the other side of things, when you've got someone, uh, and I think that there's a lot of hypocrisy on the outside, and I realized that I had some of that too. There's an imbalance in the way we look at the whole situation, the criminal justice system. I still feel like I always have. If you do the crime, you do the time, sure. you know, but I don't think a justice system has to be devoid of mercy. Mm -hmm. I think that it can be both, and not only that, and, and a lot of people have told me that, well, they don't think that taxpayers should be having to pay for these programs or education or anything like that, and they don't deserve any of that, and maybe they don't deserve it. But if people are honest, and a lot of people have a very cynical view, I've found, you know, when these conversations about prisons come up, I'll hear comments like, well, they're all con artists and it's not sincere and it's not real and I they're just faking that. and they're they just trying that. to fool people. I don't know that. That's a false allegation. It's slander, really. It's that, dangerous. Yeah, it really is. And first, you know, those people are judging without knowing anything right. about it. That is not a scriptural way of operating <laughs> or judging a situation at all. It's a very anti-Torah way to make a judgment about that. Well, it's also anti-faith because, I mean, I don't want to go in there or be a Pollyanna about it, but, you know, that's like telling God what he can and can't do. God, you're not powerful enough to get in there in a person's heart and change them. And I realize that probably the percentage of that happening in the whole population is not going to be massive. Because it's not massive outside the prison either, because men's hearts are hard and cold. But if the body of Yeshua would do their own inner work and you know address their own recidivism, because we were talking about this before we started the, the tape, the doodad, <laughs> I show my age by saying tape, um, that it's not just prison recidivism. That's not just an issue in prison. That's the recidivism issue in people in the church, in all New Year's resolutions. It's the rate of, here's what I say I want to do, and maybe even want to do, but then here's the rate where I fail of that vision. Mm -hmm. And that gets all of us, whether we are in prison or not. And so you can't just say, well, that's a prison issue. It doesn't affect me. B.S. Because that is the, that is the great problem that we all face. Yeah. Of getting ourselves from where we are to where we want to be and not jacking ourselves up with self-sabotage constantly. It's the same issue. It's just that the people out here, many of them, have not committed crimes worthy of being locked up for, and many of them have and haven't been caught. But it's it's a soul issue. So we look at it on the outside to understand, you know, first the natural and then the spiritual. But it's happening in all of us. And when we sit in judgment on inmates because it's theirs is obvious, then it's like, I'm not like those people. Oh, BS, you are totally like them in this sense. 
if you can't jump the divide or fly on the wings of the Holy Spirit or slingshot yourself out of a great slingshot, whatever you have to do to become more like God and get on that path and you keep going back like a dog to its own vomit, you just keep going back to your old ways and your old way of thinking and your old doing, then recidivism has you in its grip too. Yeah, it's it's often very hypocritical and there's a blindness and that's one of the first things that I realized when I was in there. I had to be honest with myself and realize that I could have been in there too, just like them with some of the decisions I've made if I'd been caught or if I would have. There's times where I had thoughts of doing things that could have landed me Mm -hmm. in there for life. And anybody who's honest has probably had those kinds of thoughts too. They may not have followed through with them, but things are on a spectrum. And just like you said, people out in uh, polite society, as we might call it, (laughs) <laughs> may not they live often fairly lawlessly too it mm-hmm. might just be on the spectrum not enough to get them thrown into prison yeah. or it might or there's different types of crimes they might commit fraud mm-hmm. in different ways on their taxes or mm-hmm. or even speeding and most of us that's you know that's a hard thing to uh conform to the speed limit sometimes i mean for for me and probably for a lot of people, it is breaking the law, and it is, the law is there. We are supposed to obey the laws of the land, and sometimes in my impatience or in unconsciousness or whatever, I find myself not doing that. But just to kind of bring it back to this idea of recidivism, you're right. When we start looking at things through more of a spectrum, and we start looking at things from a more humble, detached viewpoint, we see that these reasons for the recidivism rate of folks that have been released from prison returning is the same principle at work of someone not fulfilling their New Year's resolution or, like you said, the uh, what society might call the, uh, or, or maybe Christian pastors or whatever might call the church recidivism rate of these people maybe that come to a revival and have some, maybe a, a legitimate spiritual experience. Sure. And then they, what they say, backslide. That's recidivism. Backsliding is spiritual recidivism. And it's not even really backsliding per se. I mean, yes and no, it's being caught in the gravity of your habits. Really, being caught in the gravity of your old habits that are according to the old man. And you know what? That's natural. And so when I speak with a type of judgment that we all commit recidivism or we're all victims of recidivism, I'm not trying to nail anybody to the wall and be condemning. What I am trying to do, though, is tell the truth about something. Because you can't fix a problem or address an issue that you won't admit exists and you can't repent without confession and absolution, whatever, you know, without atonement. So you have to call something what it is. And when people are unconscious or they're unwilling or they are hypocritical, and we all are at different times to different degrees, something has to come in and break through that and say, shine the light of truth and say, hey, this is what this is. Stop deluding yourself Stop congratulating yourself that you're better than the inmates or you're better than this person or you're better than that person. And, you know, maybe you don't do some of these things good, but you need to up your game. 
if you're wanting to experience God and have a connection and a relationship to the divine realm and all the divine things and be transformed by it, you're going to have to up your game and you're going to have to admit and look at something you don't want to look at and admit that it's the truth before you start being able to turn your own heart enough toward God and humble yourself that his grace will flow to you because again, God is efficient. He's not just going to pour all this grace into your everyday life and into your being that you're just going to squander. And people will say, oh, he's full of grace. He is full of grace, but he's efficient. Where your effort, your best effort, and I mean, we all have a long way to go before we hit the wall of our best effort. <laughs> Whatever we tell ourselves, we can do a lot more, probably most of us, than what we're doing where we hit that wall of our best effort. And it's like the runner that literally can't go one more step. You've, you may have seen these videos like I have where this person's running and maybe they're handicapped, maybe they're not. Maybe they have a cramp and they're just like a short distance from the finish line. These other runners will come in and kind of half help carry them over the finish line. And that's how I see God's grace. Where our ability to truly, we lack ability to take one more step. And for some people like the demoniac in the cemetery in the Gospels. He was not in his right mind. He could not hear Yeshua's teachings in the state that he was in. He could not practice anything. He, he wasn't in his right mind. And that gets me because that person, Yeshua came in and he did for him what he could not do for himself. That's grace. And then he said, Go tell everybody what God has done for you and be a witness. Now you can because there's been a transformation. But he expected more out of his disciples because they weren't full of demonic activity and they had more control over their thoughts and actions than this poor man did. So there's different levels of grace. Yeah, that's very good. And when we talked, I remember I think during when we talked at length, a while back about the new spiritual paradigm and that you were talking about hypocrisy a moment, a moment ago. In many ways, we could think of hypocrisy as being the opposite of integrity. Yes. That integrity is an integration, a move toward unity and oneness. Mm -hmm. Hypocrisy is two different aspects that are at war with each mm -hmm. other or opposite each other that don't match to a duality within the personality that has not been integrated. Wool and linen. Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Wool and linen or uh, the ox and the donkey. A lot of these contradictory energies, very much like, you know, it talks about in the scriptures about not to be double-minded. Well, that's what that is, mm -hmm. a hypocrisy. It's the, the ox and the donkey being yoked together or the wool and the linen it is two opposite energies working against each other mm -hmm. and it's the it's the opposite of the nature of god mm -hmm. and of the nature of the messiah of oneness that we're supposed to be being conformed into so we recently talked about the disconnect and the fragmented way of seeing the world typically but when we begin to see that you can't really separate religion or theology from science from true science mm -mm, i agree because when i'm talking about not necessarily what scientists say but of what really is that god created these laws 
and that these laws, such as um, for every action, there's mm-hmm. an equal and opposite reaction. That's not only scientific, it's spiritual. Sure. I mean, it's it's not just material or physical, it is also mm-hmm. spiritual. And another one is that, I can't quote this exactly, but basically a body, something that's in motion, it's easier to keep it in motion mm-hmm. Once you get it going, it's mm-hmm. easier to keep that momentum going like a pendulum. Mm-hmm. Once you get it, you get it started, it'll kind of keep itself going. Well, when we look at this concept of recidivism, I don't know if we've talked about it on the podcast before or not. I don't think we have, but I have referenced it in some of the Torah studies before. If you go on YouTube or <clears throat> there's probably a number of sites that have videos you can look up, there's a number of these experiments you can watch on the internet like YouTube. If you go in there, you'll see uh, there's a video with 64 metronomes. Mm-hmm. And a metronome, you may not know what that's called, but you've all seen them. Like someone who's learning piano, it's a little pendulum kind of device, and you put it up there, and it'll go, it'll click back and forth. Tick, yeah. tick, tick, yeah. tick. And it just helps the musician, the guitarist, or the pianist keep time. So they set up 64 of these metronomes in one video. All going different directions. They're all going chaos, total chaos. All 64 of them doing their own unique thing. Total chaos, total disorder. Well, what begins to happen in only about three minutes, Mm -hmm. they all begin to entrain to each other. And by the end of about three minutes, they're all in perfect harmony and unity, all clicking together. That is amazing because gravity is in that too. I mean, there's there's not just one thing that's causing it. Many things get bent, you know, gra- it, for them all to entrain like that. Even women, it is a phenomenon that's kind of joked about, but it is an absolute phenomenon. You let a bunch of women work in the same office and all their different cycles will start to entrain to each other. Even in the dogs, we have all female dogs, they do this often the same thing, and you're like, oh, good gravy. But it, there is an entrainment, even on a natural level, how much more a spiritual level. And I mean, the whole point, it sounds like a big epic thing that is too hard for people, but you know, you're either being conformed and trained to a spiritual dynamic with spiritual values, with spiritual fruit, and a spiritual way of seeing the world and being in the world, or you're being entrained to the spirit of the world, which doesn't promote oneness. It's basically anarchy. You know, at its basic core concept, its basic core impulse, it's anarchy, I will do my own will. And the spiritual is I will do the will of the greater and the greatest the creator of all of this, even if I don't know what to call him, even if I don't know what to believe about it, I feel that there's something bigger and greater than me that has created all of this, that keeps it sustained with all of its parts and all of the planets and all of the molecules. I mean, it's it's mind-boggling that all of this is kept in perfect harmony, and it is perfect harmony. People might say there's chaos out there. Well, my opinion is the true chaos is man-induced. Nature knows how to keep itself in harmony, and what we might even say is chaos, like disasters, that's still a way of keeping 30,000 foot view of it, looking at it over the long haul. This is the way that it keeps harmony. 
that the lightning strikes and you say, oh, it's tragic that all these forests are burning, and it is. But it's the Earth's way of pruning itself, basically, and kicking back something. And, you know, not to go off on a tangent, but every time man gets involved in that process, you know, I don't like to see people die of sicknesses and different things either, but like just in the medical field, you know, the invention or the discovery of the antibiotic and just things that we've introduced into society is kind of like taking an indigenous species of tree and transplanting it into another place that it it's not indigenous. And then you mess with the ecosystem and all of a sudden now we've got superbugs after so many years of having antibiotics that man has introduced this problem through interfering with the natural order. And again, I don't know where the bed bug line is of how much man should get involved to try to solve problems or whatever because he's not supposed to be a hapless victim. But if if mankind had a respect for the sovereignty of God and the way he set up his creation, we would not have a lot of the problems now that we have. There would not be this strange genetic weirdness that's out there. Uh, we would think twice before doing something and jacking with something like manipulating the genes on the food and and all of this stuff that now this jacked up food is causing to, to our health. I mean, we've just got in, in the nuclear wars and the A-bomb. I mean, just all of these things. God didn't do that. God did not do that. Man did that. And when you bow yourself before the sovereignty of the Spirit of God in the divine realm, you are understanding that you are subject to a greater objective reality. And so it comes down for me between those two things. Do you bow yourself before what made you, or do you say, my own will? Well, and the answer to staying the course and to being stable, stabilization and getting other people's the whole thing, if you'll watch the video and the metronomes, and there's other experiments like that, the disconnect is people will watch that and think, oh, well, that's kind of cool, or whatever, and not even realize that every one of us is one of those metronomes. Right. And every inmate that gets out of prison is a metronome. Mm -hmm. And the principle behind that, the scientific principle, the spiritual principle, is that there was this scientist back in the 1600s. He's the man who invented the pendulum clock. And he had a couple of them going, and he noticed this phenomenon. He disrupted it, and it corrected itself in a short amount of time. And bottom line, what happens there is that when two objects or two things, or let's say two people even, are of a similar vibration, the weaker one will entrain to that of the stronger one. So that's what happened with the metronomes, if you watch that, and entrainment, that over a short amount of time, the weaker metronomes entrain to that of mm -hmm. the stronger, and they all become a collective servant group doing yep. the same thing. Yep. Well, that's they're yep. doing what God designed us to yes. be, yes. if it's done rightly. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what happens, is that you have an, an inmate, let's say, and he has, or she, has repented. They began to get themselves together. God is working in their life. They have fruit in their life. And they have become entrained to that social group while they're in prison. And they go and they do their Bible studies and, and they pray. And they've cultivated joy and peace and these things in their life. And 
they support each other. They have such a wonderful yeah. support group there. They get out, and now they do not have that mm-hmm. social structure. Mm-hmm. They get out, and maybe they reach out to congregations, maybe mm-hmm. Messianic congregations or Jewish congregations or Christian churches, and a lot of times they're shunned. Mm-hmm. And people don't really want a lot to do with them. But even if they're not, I think the people don't understand really how what's going on and how to help them. Mm-hmm. What is going to happen, the person has to begin to entrain in this new life once they get out to a high vibration, a heavenly vibration. And they need that support structure of us metronomes that are out here. Yeah. That have developed some degree of consistency and spiritual and natural stability mm-hmm. to help them entrain to that field because sure. that's what we're talking about here is fields again we want to look at this as oh you're talking about science and these metric it's some sort of scientific thing that's weird that these fields are generated and somehow the 64 metronomes that are all doing their own thing end up in three minutes all in perfect unity and sync. It's universal. Yeah, it's universal, and it's this is a spiritual principle, mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. This was what Yeshua said, Father, I pray that they might become one, right. even as you and I are one. Right. That is the idea for all of mm-hmm. us, is to become to where mm-hmm. we're all speaking the same thing, and as the scripture says, not that there's not diversity, sure. Sure. Different different colors, different expressions, all of that. Different giftings, different offices, diversity within the body. Yes. But the whole body is to be integrated. Every member of the body is all to work together and being trained to every other part. And you can't do that if you're not entrained inside yourself. If you're not integrated, and you don't even have to be 100% integrated, when you pass the 50% mark... You know, and, and there's kind of a, it's a shaking. It's almost like entering an atmosphere or leaving an atmosphere. There's a shaking there. As you are changing, when you go from 48, 49, 50%, 51, 52, and you, you move over from being an ego-led person to a spiritually-led person, you know, at that point of tipping, the tipping point, it's, I mean, there's a shaking, and you can feel it, and you it's, it's like passing through the eye of a cosmic needle black hole you can feel it to in your cells or whatever but then you pass and all of a sudden you things start to get a little easier not that they are completely easy but they just start to get more easy for you you can more manifest a spiritual aspect that you've been trying to manifest for so very long you just it's like the pennies Keith and I've talked about the compound interest principle of the pennies you know and suddenly what you've been striving for and what you've been uh, envisioning in your mind and working for you suddenly see the fruit of that you suddenly start to see the fruit coming up it's just like planting a garden there is a time frame where you do all this work and it's a lot of hard work and then you wait but you keep doing the work that it takes to grow a garden and you don't see things sprouting up typically overnight you don't see that but something's working under the ground and for anybody out there that might be asking the question, well, this all sounds good and, and I'm, I'm on board with you, how do we get, begin the process of integration? How do, how do I begin from where I am feeling kind of powerless like I see all this and what you're, you're portraying here, but gosh, how do I take a step in the right direction? 
well, what made the difference for me? And it sounds deceptively simple. And a lot of times people, yeah, yeah, tell me something, you know, deeply spiritual or epic or something that I looks amazing. Give me the shiny object that, you know, looks amazing. It's actually a very deceptively simple step. Start being honest with yourself in each situation and moment about your own motives. Start doing that. And you think, well, what has that got to do with these great big spiritual concepts? Well, my goodness, if you can't be honest with yourself, inside yourself, <laughs> about yourself, then what makes you think you can do anything greater than that? And it seems like a very simple step and process, but that's how you begin bringing light into your own being. That's how you start building that base for you to stand on inside your own soul. <laughs> Our dogs are starting to wake up now. <laughs> Travel on the way. <laughs> um, but if you just say, like, whenever you do something and you mix with people and there's just an action that you've taken or something you've done or something you've not done, just start asking yourself, now, here's what I told myself and here's what I told them. What was my real motive? Did I do this so they would like me? Did I say yes so they would approve of me? Did I do this because... I look like I'm in service, but I'm really serving myself. And not even trying to change your motive at that point. Just become aware of your motives. Is what I said true? Is what I did in my integrity? Or are there dual, dueling banjo motives? Like part of my motive is to help, but then also part of my motive is to ABC that's a little more shady. And just get, just start practicing that over the next few weeks. And just really bring a light in and get curious without becoming and falling under a bunch of judgment. Just bring the light of awareness to why you do what you do. Is what I'm telling people what's really going on inside of me? And, and not judge it. Just like good or bad or I'm awful or ju just bring the light of awareness. And then over time after you do that, just being aware of a discrepancy will start to bring things into, an har into a harmony like the inner metronomes of here's my motive over here, here's my motive over here, this serves the light, this doesn't, this, serve my, this serves myself. But when you bring the light of awareness in, just awareness of the truth of what is there, even when it conflicts with itself, bringing that light of consciousness, then you keep doing that and you keep doing that over time. Your own inner metronomes will start to align. Right. We need to uh, probably do several podcasts on this subject because we need to get into talking about inward spiritual gravitas and fields and the collective unconsciousness and a lot of these themes that are all going to tie into this. But mm -hmm. if you can visualize this and having models sometimes can help you, mm -hmm. if you watch the video, take uh, three minutes and go on YouTube and type in metronome entrainment. And I think one of them says uh, 64 metronomes and in three three, three and a half minutes, you can watch this video and see this transformation of total chaos to mm -hmm. complete order of mm -hmm. them. As I said, the scientific law is that when two things are of a similar vibration, the weaker one will entrain to that of the stronger. If we think of ourselves each as a metronome, and to one side of us is a truth metronome, mm -hmm. and to one side of us is a self-delusion mm -hmm. metronome that may be a pseudo-self or where we lie to ourselves or we're un an unconscious. An unconsciousness, yeah. Whichever one of those we're closest to in vibration that we practiced, mm -hmm. we're going to entrain to that. 
And so we want to focus and begin to move away from the delusion and move closer to the truth where we can begin to entrain to the vibration of the truth rather than of self-deception and all kinds of other deception. Well, and don't feel bad if after looking at something you realize that your more practiced vibration is under a self-delusion. I mean, we this is where we all come from. We all come from this to one to whatever degree where what we thought was our motive isn't really our motive or it's part of it, but not all of it. I mean, and this is how we self-sabotage. One thing I hear every one thing that is common to every human that I come in contact with, no matter their age, their cultural group, their financial situation, whether they are even spiritual people or not, they will say, I can't seem to break free of my self-sabotaging patterns, and I can't seem to get totally clear on all of it. Like, I know I keep doing this, but I don't know why. It's like there's, I can't, there's a curtain, a veil that just keeps me from understanding the deep inner machinery of how this self-sabotage keeps working. Well, this is the way to start mitigating that. We can't be aware of something, how, how to fix a problem we're not aware of. And so we have to, that's why you have to bring truth in. And you have to, so you don't just fall all over yourself and say, I'm unworthy and I'm a piece of trash. You have to do it with curiosity and a little bit of detachment to say, I'm not going to go down the rabbit hole of I'm not worthy and I'm a loser. I'm bringing truth in, not to reinforce my crappy beliefs about myself. I'm bringing truth in to really see what's there from a detached, curious perspective. I really want to know. Because people that are afraid that they're horrible typically are not as bad as they think. And people that think they're great and above reproach are not that. They're not as good or as bad as they seem. And to close that distance, to close that gap and start gaining on not sabotaging yourself, you have to pull that veil back and and not be afraid or not let your fear stop you. We're all afraid of certain truths and afraid of certain things. We're afraid of what we'll find, but often we're afraid it's going to require more of us than what we're willing to change or take responsibility for. But if you really want freedom from your self-sabotaging habits and your biggest problems, no matter what you tell yourself, I had to get to this point, they're not on the outside of you. They are on the inside of you where you actually have control. And people say, well, my gosh, that is overwhelming to me that I'm to, quote, blame. I'm to thank or be responsible for my own problems. That seems impossible to change. No, the opposite is actually true. You can't control problems externally from you because you don't have control of other people but where you do have control is yourself so the good news is if you're causing all your own problems or your own self-sabotaging patterns you can make a different choice you can start practicing a different action absolutely and this is what the bible teaches that my people are destroyed for right. lack of knowledge or they perish for lack of knowledge hosea says but Daniel talks about, Daniel 12, a time when knowledge will be greatly increased. I believe that we're there now. Yeshua, of course, in John 8, said that if you continue in my word, you will know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. If you're blind to these areas, you can't fix Mm -hmm. them, and you'll Mm -mm. continue to repeat Mm -hmm. these same destructive Mm -hmm. cycles in your life. We're going to have to get into a lot more of that, because I I know that a lot of these things require more explanation that that I think will help shed more light on this. But I hope that, again, today that we've given you 
some things to think about to maybe begin to leverage mm-hmm. toward your creating greater integration and stability in your life and begin to greater in a better, more clear way, see your see what is tripping you up or see what is mm-hmm. causing you to entrain to negative mm-hmm. past behaviors or how you can begin to entrain to a higher spiritual pattern and way of living. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So thanks for joining us, folks, and we will see you next time.